The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit RestorationSouthside.org. One who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will be no means lose his rewards. Well, but in no means lose his reward. <clears throat> Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourself and be at peace with one another. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you are in kindergarten through fifth grade you will, and you would like to go to children's church, please join our volunteers by the Kids Zone sign in the back. If it's your child's first time in children's church, please go with them so we can get them checked in. Thank you, Carrie. So you join the church, we put you to work immediately reading scripture. No, you you don't have to. I'm going to be pointing us, referencing those verses back to us. So if you have your app open uh, or your Bible open, again, we're in Mark 9, 38 through 50. Um, Before we dive in, I just want to say a couple of things. We want to teach you, want to learn ourselves what the Bible says, which means that when we choose a study, like walking through Mark or walking through Ecclesiastes, we will walk all the way through it and deal with all of what's in it. And so we will deal with this passage straight on about hell and the worm and all of that. But I just want you to know that if this is your first time or you've convinced yourself finally to get to church and to re-engage, and you're like, of course, they're preaching on hellfire and brimstone. We don't always do that. We do that when it comes up in the text, and we will faithfully do that as it comes up in the text. But it's a uh, warning for us, and we need to take it seriously. But I encourage you, if this is your first time, to not consider, don't think that we talk about this every single second. We talk about it as it comes up in the text. Now, if you would, let me pray, and we'll dive in together. Lord, would you have mercy on me, a sinner? I thank you, and I praise you for your word and your Holy Spirit, and I ask that your Holy Spirit would be powerfully at work this morning. We know that there are those who haven't encountered Christ who don't know Jesus, whose 
don't know that they can put their trust in him and his record and his righteousness and his work, I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would open eyes to make that a reality. And for those of us who are just beaten down by our sin, just glaringly aware of our flaws, I pray that you'd bring encouragement and comfort. For those of us who are limped into this room from suffering, from disease or loss or discouragement, I pray that you would feed your people. We know that you love to give good gifts to your children, and I'm asking that you would do so by your Holy Spirit. I ask trusting, knowing that you love to meet your people. But please move. We thank you for this time, and we ask that you give us wisdom as we study these things together. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I have bamboo growing in my backyard. We're not exactly sure how it got there. We heard... My son heard that it is not true that it grows in North America naturally, that it had to have been transported here from somewhere at some time. But what I can tell you is that I have a forest of bamboo growing in my backyard. And when we first moved in, we were like, this is so amazing. It's like so beautiful and tropical. We're going to love having a bamboo forest. Not so much. The bamboo forest is constantly trying to take over our yard and our house and our lives. You have to cut it back constantly. And when you cut it back, you actually dig up the bamboo sprouts. You dig them up. They look sort of like corn husks. You dig them up and you cut off the top of them and you dump poison down into them. And it grows back the next year anyway. It is a weed and it should be eradicated from the world. The reason that I tell you about how unmanageable bamboo is, is because it's a really good picture at what dealing with sin is like. That it needs constant, violent attention. That you can't forget about it. You can't take a break. That there are no half measures in dealing with sin. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Jesus uses these violent analogies, not violent against people, but violent against sin, this posture we have to have. And I want that to comfort you and challenge you. I want it to comfort you because Jesus, the hero of the Bible, is saying this is how hard it is to deal with sin. It requires violent, radical action, and you have to keep doing it. That's encouraging. Because like me, you're sinners. We get this sense some point that, well, get a little better and we won't have to worry about these things as much. No. Sin requires ongoing treatment and radical action. So it's encouraging that Jesus is saying, yeah, that problem you experience, it's real and it's invasive. That's the comfort. But the challenge in it is that we're not allowed to say, well, sin is so invasive and sin is so hard to fight that you know we don't need to try it's just always going to be there always in the background always fighting us and we don't really need to try it could sort of drive apathy towards our sin and so he's saying both things he's saying yes of course you're a sinner and of course it's hard to fight sin and at the same time you have to stay in the fight you have to keep cutting it back and keep treating it over and over again 
That's what I want you to see this morning. I am confident that every day you sin because every single day I sin. So I want you to know that there's grace in that. But what I don't want you to do is to say, oh, there's sin, we all have sin, he's got sin, we've got sin, she's got sin. We're not gonna make any progress. The Bible calls us to stay in the fight. So let's look at this together. Let's look at how Jesus deals with the disciple sin, their influence on others, comments about hell, comments about peace. Let's look at these things together. First of all, let's look at this. The disciples' comments in 38 through 40. Glance with me and look at what John says. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Now I want you to remember the context of why this is so important. I know when we're marching through a book of the Bible, sometimes we can lose the impact of what the author has done and he's organized these stories for us in such a way that it leads right here. Do you remember what happened just a couple of chapters ago? Just in eight? A boy has a demon and it convulses him and throws him into the water and the fire and the disciples try and cast the demon out and they can't do it. And of course, Jesus comes in, rescues the boy, casts the demon out, and they say, why can't we cast the demon out? And he says, this, this kind only comes out by prayer. So they fail to cast out a demon. Then, in the passage we just read, Sorry, the three verses before what we just read, it says this, and they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Do you see it? They can't cast out a demon. Then they're fighting about who was the greatest. And then there's somebody else who's not one of them casting out a demon. They're miffed because they're the ones who are great. They're the ones who are supposed to have power and notoriety in the kingdom. And they're upset that this person, who's not even one of them, is casting out demons. It shows there's ugliness of their heart, that they have this spiritual side of them which feels superior to everyone else. Superior to everyone else. And Jesus says, don't stop him. Whoever's not against us is for us. Jesus is saying just because he's not part of your gang of 12 doesn't mean that he's not one of my own children. And if he's doing good things in my name, let him do it. What we see Jesus addressing here is our constant efforts towards tribalism. The sense of what we're doing at our church or in our uh, circle is more important than what's going on over there. And so we should be suspicious about what's going on over there. We should sort of give dismissive comments about what's going on over there. Because what's going on over there isn't really truly whole and good like what we have. And friends, Christians are famous for this. The disciples didn't like it because they're still trying to figure out which one of them is the greatest. And they're still upset that they couldn't heal somebody. And this guy's doing it. They show that they want 
they want to be the spiritual insiders, the spiritual great ones, and we struggle with the exact same thing, especially in our theological circles. We like to think those people don't believe what we believe. They don't understand the Bible like we understand it. They don't have the truth like we have the truth, and so we should be dismissive of them. And what it ends up being is that people, Christians, end up fighting with each other instead of fighting for good in the world and in the kingdom. Christians end up fighting with each other instead of fighting against the world and for the good of the kingdom. Kent Hughes says this in his commentary. Listen to this poem. Believe as I believe, no more or no less, that I am right and no one else confess. Feel as I feel, think as I think, eat what I eat and drink what I drink. Look as I look, do always as I do, and only then I'll fellowship with you. You hear that? There's this tendency to believe that because we understand the gospel so clearly, or because we're so missional, or because we have the best worship, what we're doing is more important than what other Christians are doing, what other kingdom efforts are doing. And Jesus calls us to have a humility he calls us to have a kingdom vision instead of a tribal vision. One of our 10 distinctives at Restoration Southside is that we kingdom focused and not tribal focused, which means we don't talk a whole lot about denomination. We have one and we're grateful for it, but we don't talk a whole lot about it. It serves in the background, excuse me, it serves in the background and not in the headlines. Because what we want to happen here is for Jesus to transform us and to use us to bless the city, bless the neighborhood. And we don't want to get caught up in drawing circles and lines around who agrees with what and who's, who thinks this and what do you guys value. And If they're kingdom-centered and Jesus-focused, we want to encourage them and bless them. We're not supposed to be dividing up with rivalry and jealousy. Every once in a while, somebody will say to me, hey, do you have this at your church? And I always smile and gently say, it's actually not my church, it's Jesus' church. And when I'm reminding them, I, I have to admit, I'm also reminding me. This is not my gospel and this is not my church. Jesus has been at work here before me and he'll be at work here long after me. And we are supposed to have this. We want to serve Jesus and his kingdom, not we want to serve our little tribe, our little circle. What are the ways that we as the church can bless others? What are the ways that we as a church can act as if we are for other Christians and not against them? We are not in competition with other churches. We hope they thrive. We hope they make their ministry budget. We hope their pews fill up, if they have pews, they fill up with people. And we hope they want that for us too. Friends, we do not want to participate in this small-minded tribalism that the disciples are doing. If Jesus is being preached and the kingdom is growing, we want to be on the front lines cheering for whoever that is. Jesus says here, Whoever is not against us is for us. His point is, if this guy is proclaiming my name and doing works in my name, then just because he's not one of the 12 
doesn't mean the 12 shouldn't be for him. And he says this. I'll show you this and we'll move on. Look at verse 41. For truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. What he's saying is, fellas, you think this guy uh, is, is special or needs special treatment because he's casting out demons and you should keep on letting him do that. Jesus says, you, not just that, even one of you who's not in your 12, who gives you a cup of water in my name, that person will not be overlooked by God. And what that means for you is for some of you to think, you know, it doesn't really matter. The church and Jared and the leaders, they'll do the kingdom Christ stuff, and it doesn't really matter what I do. Jesus is emphasizing here that the kingdom comes in little things. Like giving a cup of water, like serving in the nursery, working in the parking lot, bringing a meal to a neighbor, watching a neighbor's kids so that they could, that couple can go to marriage counseling. The kingdom comes in small things, not just in this exercising of a demon. So first of all, we're not supposed to be tribal. We're supposed to be kingdom-oriented in our thinking. And we're not supposed to cause others to sin. We'll deal with this quickly. Look at verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in him and me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and were thrown into the sea. Jesus is using a historical example, but it's a graphic one. There was at least two people that the disciples would have known who at that time literally had a millstone, a threshing millstone, something so big that it would take an animal to twist the millstone, that to be hung around someone's neck and then dropped into the bottle, bottom of the sea. This is an image that would have brought horror to their minds. Because not only would you see the person struggling to fight the millstone being dropped and struggling to swim, and all of a sudden the struggle would stop and you would just see this body floating in the water, tied to a millstone. And Jesus says, just like you know that that's happened, here recently in history, two examples they would have known about, he's saying, just as you know that that would have happened, be careful for any one of you disciples who causes these little ones to sin. Now, he doesn't just mean these little ones as in little children. He includes the children, but he's also referencing those who are young in the faith, those who are just getting into this. And he's saying, you disciples, you disciples, if you're modeling this spiritual superiority to a way that somebody who's doing kingdom work gets marginalized, woe is to you, it would be better if you were just killed outright. He's using this graphic example to get their attention. He's saying, fellas, be careful what you teach to the new ones. That you're not teaching them this tribalism, this self-protectedness, this aggrandized version of yourself. Do not cause other people to sin. Don't cause others to struggle and stumble. He's trying to communicate to them that what they're modeling whether it's arguing about which one of them is the greatest or whether it's this rivalry about the fact that that guy can do miracles and they can't do miracles as well, whatever it is that they're modeling to the young ones in the faith really matters. So he tells them to be careful that they don't cause sin by their influence and their leadership, but then he tells them to be careful about their own sin. And we'll linger here for a few minutes. Be careful about their own sin. Look with me in verses 43 through 47. And if your hand causes you to sin, 
cut it off. It's better for you to enter the life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. What he's saying here is that it is so important for you to take sin seriously. It is so important for you to take sin seriously. John Owen once famously said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. He knows the temptation for you to think. And I think for our generation, it's not as difficult, my generation, it's not as difficult to think about the fact that we're sinners or we would say we're messed up, we're a mess, we're broken. We can see that clearly. But my generation's temptation is we're so messed up, we're so broken, we're such sinners that it's not really worth trying to fight it. It's not really worth trying to fight it. And so it drives this apathy. Other generations would have made sin easy. Don't drink or dance or chew or go with girls that do. And when you, you make sin conquerable and you make Jesus small. And so either way, whatever you're doing, with, basically you, the tendency is to either make a small deal out of sin and let yourself off the hook or make a big deal out of sin and let yourself off the hook. Small deal because you're keeping up or a big deal because no one can keep up. And what he's saying here is that sin is serious and it's invasive and the only thing to do with it is to treat it violently, radically, even though it's still going to be there until you're dead. It's this violent, radical action. There was a young man who became a believer in my youth group when I was growing up. And it was interesting because a bunch of us had been in the church our whole lives and didn't even really remember when we had become Christians, which is a great story to grow up in the faithfulness of God and to know, never know a day where you don't know. But this kid in our small group, he, had, he knew, he came to Christ among us and knew with fresh eyes what it meant like to follow Jesus and he, like most of us, at some point, struggled with what he was looking at on the internet with his eyes. And it was bothering him, and it was overwhelming him, and he was so disgusted by it. And I remember at one point he came to our small group, and he said, Guys, I, I took my laptop, and the port that I used to plug in the internet, because back then you had to plug into the internet. He said, I filled it with super glue so that I couldn't use it on the internet anymore. And I was like, dude, you just ruined your computer. I kept thinking, couldn't you just not? Couldn't you just stop? I remember at that time I thought how silly that was to take such a dramatic action. Now as I look back on that, I think I am so proud of that guy. That he would take something good and ruin it because he didn't want it to lead him astray. It didn't want him to knock him off the path. We have to take our sin seriously. Listen, have you heard this voice? It's not that big a deal. Just try it. Have a little. Have a little more. You deserve this. It won't kill you. 
You've been hurting so badly. You face so much. No one else knows how hard it's been for you. This is all you ask of yourself. It's not that much. It's just a little looking. It's just a little emailing. It's just a little texting. It's just a little tasting. It's just dinner. We're not going to meet after dinner. It's just a little. Do you recognize that voice? Friends, sin is hunting you. It wants you to fail. The Bible says this, be alert and sober-minded that your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Peter was saying those words to Christians. Yes, you are saved by faith. And it's an entire work of grace. And the devil can't steal that from you. But he can still have you make a wreck of your life. He can still make you ruin your Christian witness. He's hunting you. Sin always looks good. Let me contrast the sin and the Holy Spirit here just so you can hear the voices differently. Sin always looks good, whereas the Spirit often asks or always asks for unselfishness. Sin always tells you it's not sin or it's not that big of a deal. And the Holy Spirit wants to grow you and change you and heal you and make you holy. Sin is always promising you the easy path. The Holy Spirit promised you his presence through the inevitably hard path. Friends, don't dabble with your sin. Instagram. I'm not saying Instagram as a whole. I'm just saying it can, be, it can lead you, just like any social media place, it can lead you down a dark hole if you're not careful. Or just one more drink or just one more text. Just a little skimming on the expense report. Just a little. I'm telling you, whenever I'm sitting with someone who has made a wreck of their life, what they always say is, I don't know how I got here. I don't know how I got here. If you need validation that Jesus thinks that sin is hard to fight, this passage should lift your head. If you're losing in your fight against sin, because sin is so hard to fight, this should lift your head. This is Jesus saying, of course it's hard. And you're going to have to take violent action. I remember for years that I just thought sin would go away. It would get a little easier. I remember as I was a young man struggling with pornography and sexual sin, thinking, okay, maybe, maybe I'm struggling, maybe I'm giving in to this, but at some point I'll get married and then this struggle will go away. Guess how that turned out for me. Sin doesn't just go away. It has to be cut back and cut back and treated. And here's another thing about sin. Sin won't look at you and scream, hey, I'm sin. I'm here to wreck your life. Just follow me. You'll be dead soon, and so will your reputation. That's not what sin looks at you and says. Sin says, hey, I'm not sin. I'm, I'm not even trouble. I'm not even trouble. This is no big deal. Honestly, I wouldn't even worry about it. That's the picture of sin, is that with our eyes and our hands and our feet, what we look at, what we do with our hands, where we go, our paths that we walk. And I want you to see this too, and then we'll move on. He says, cut out your eye, cut off your hand, cut off your foot. 
It is radical surgery, but it's radical self-surgery. Radical self-surgery. What Christians have gotten famous for is taking sin seriously, except the sin that we love to take the most seriously is other people's sin. We like to pick on things that we happen to kind of be good at in our life and pick on them because if we're shouting about their sin, we don't have to be radically dealing with our own sin. And here in the text, he says, your eye, your foot, your hand. It's actually the mark of a godly Christian that they are ruthless with their own sin and gentle with others in dealing with their sin. The mark of a godly Christian is someone that is actually ruthless with their own sin, but gentle with others when dealing with their sin. If you don't believe me, it says this in Galatians 6.1, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. Or watch yourselves. You may also be tempted. Even Paul in helping us think through dealing with other people's sin is like, yeah, if you're following Jesus and you're trying to help someone close who's struggling with sin, help them do so gently and watch out because you are just as prone to that sin as they are. Do you see the posture? The posture is for other people. It's gentleness for other people and it's ruthlessness with our own sin. But what we've learned in the church is to be gentle with our own sin. It's not there or it's not that bad or I'm trying to deal with it and ruthless with other people's sin. Can you imagine what those who don't know Jesus would think about us if we stopped pointing at their sin and started pointing at our own? We'd be able to model for them that there's help in the church because I've got a problem And Jesus slowly, by his spirit, transforms me over time. And I need that transformation. And maybe somebody on the outside sensing their own need for transformation would be drawn in instead of batted away. Ruthless with our own sin. Gentle with others in dealing with their sin. And he says so because it matters. He says basically it's a fight for hell. 47 through 48. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. What he's saying here is that it matters so much that you fight your sin. Because if you don't have a Savior in Jesus, when you don't fight your sin, you don't have a Savior, you're going to to hell. Hell is a real, actual place that the Bible teaches about, which is eternal separation from God and will not come to an end. Torture. The images he's using is this worm that won't stop eating and this fire that won't go out. The point is is that it's a miserable place that you don't want to be. So what is my application for you? Don't go to hell. Don't go to hell. I don't want you to think, well, there are different views on this, and, you know, everyone has their own feelings, and everyone has their own system, and everyone has their... Don't go to hell. 
You are offered rescue in the person and work of Jesus Christ who rescues sinners from hell. And he wants that rescue for you. Listen to this. This is from Peter. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Listen. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I don't teach you about hell because it's fun. I teach you about hell because it's real and because Jesus doesn't want you to go there. In fact, he came and endured the pains of hell so that you would never be touched by it. That's the picture. The picture of Jesus talking to the thief on the cross and Jesus is enduring the pains of hell and telling the thief, the sinner next to him, I'm taking hell and you'll go to heaven. That's what the gospel is. Don't go to hell. And for those of you who are already trusting in Christ, here's your application. Don't let the people around you go to hell. In the way that you love them and listen to them, and talk to them, and walk with them. You let them know that they're a sinner as you are, that they need a Savior as you have, and that Savior is Jesus Christ. Don't let people go to hell. One of the reasons that we planted this church is so that we could be about rescuing those from hell. That's the application he has for you is don't go to hell and don't let other people go to hell. It's a place of misery and it lasts forever. It's something you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy. And we'll close here, these last two points. He says this, for everyone will be salted with fire. Verse 49, for everyone will be salted with fire. He's talking about fire of hell. Don't, don't go to the fire of hell. And then he's like, in fact, Everyone will experience the fires, salted with fire. What he's saying is that everyone is going to experience sacrifice and suffering if you follow Jesus. The salt he's talking about, everyone will be salted with fire. It's, it's this image where they would take the animals that they would sacrifice in the Old Testament and they would salt them before the sacrifice and then they would sacrifice them. The image there is that Christians are going to have to live lives of sacrifice, Meaning, yes, you're not going to go to hell, but you're going to experience fire here, salt here. It says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. He's saying, disciples, fellas, fight your sin. Don't go to hell. Don't let others go to hell. Instead, live a life of sacrifice. Live a life of sacrifice. If you're a Christian in this room, are you living a life of sacrifice? And then suffering. Suffering. Everyone will be salted with fire. Everyone will be salted with fire. He's saying essentially a Christian is to live a life fighting sin, living sacrificially, and a Christian is going to suffer. Kent Hughes put these verses together. Listen. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
Another verse, for you yourselves know that we are destined for trials. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction. This is another verse. He said that through many trials and tribulations, we will enter the kingdom of God. This is another verse. Peter says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes on to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when the glory is revealed. If you are a Christian, you are going to suffer. It's the family motto. But you will suffer to better know your Savior. And when, when he comes again, just as he enters glory, you too will enter glory. Yes, it's hard. Yes, it's hard. But it will be worth it. This is lastly here. He says, stay salty. Stay salty, my friends. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. As we said before, salt is this preservative, meaning they didn't have these big deep freezes to put the animals that had been slaughtered in or refrigerators. They covered them with salt so that the meat wouldn't rot. And he's saying, you, go and be a group of people that brings preservation, that sustains the world, that makes things better than it would be. He says, basically, you go and make sure the world doesn't rot. That's what he wants for us. And to live a life of peace. You see that? Remember where we started? They're picking on this person because he's not one of them. And he says, no. And then earlier they were fighting about which one of them is the greatest. And he says, no. And he says, friends, if you're going to make it in this world, stop infighting and fight your sin, fight the devil, fight the world, stop infighting. That's what he's saying here when he says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Be at peace. How much good could the church do if we stopped fighting with one another? If we stopped being jealous and rivalrous with each other? But instead, we thought, we want anyone who follows Jesus to thrive. What if that was our testimony? You see, Jesus gives a very serious picture of what the disciples are supposed to look like, very serious dealing with sin, a very serious treatment of hell, and he calls them to peace. See, I want you to think back on the time when you were most tempted. You were most tempted, and then you gave in. Most of us have those stories of fighting and hoping and praying, promising to do better, and then just failing miserably one more time. I want you to think of how Jesus experienced that moment. Fighting the temptation, never giving in, never making excuses, never giving up. The moment you fail, he signs his name to your failure. He held out when you gave in. He kept promises when you broke yours. He took death so you could take his life. Friends, stay in the fight. It's already been won for you. Let's pray. Jesus, we know sin is serious and we know that hell is real. And we don't act like either one of those things is true. We act like sin's no big deal and hell is just some 
mythical place. Would you, by your Holy Spirit, enable us to take our sins seriously, to work on others' behalf so that others don't ever experience absence from God? Would you help us to be a place of peace and preservation and sacrifice for the world? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Don't ever experience absence from God. Would you help us to be a place of peace and preservation and sacrifice for the world? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.